Welcome to episode 29, and once again, my apologies for taking so long to put this one out. I'll be moving back to the West Coast soon and plan to devote more time to podcasting and blogging. In this episode, I'm talking with Ron Fellman from Glaucoma Associates of Texas about the Fellman fluid wave and its clinical implications in glaucoma surgery. I'm Rob Schertzer, a glaucoma specialist and educator with more than 20 years in clinical practice, and we're talking about glaucoma. Welcome to the show, Ron Fellman. Thank you. And uh, today I'd like to talk about uh, something that I really hadn't heard of until the, the American Glaucoma Society meeting uh, that we're in the midst of now, and that's the fluid wave. It seemed to come up several times each day, and it was always referred to as the Ron Fellman fluid wave. <laughs> so I don't know if you're going to go down to in infamy like the Drance hemorrhage. <laughs> you never know. You never know. So, yeah, so let's talk about that. So sure. when when do you do that? Uh, why is it useful in glaucoma That's, surgery? That, that, those are all good questions. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad, I'm glad it was brought up because it does have a use. But first of all, let's discuss, you know, what it, what it is and what it means. So I think, sure. you know, it's associated with um, today mainly microinvasive glaucoma surgery where you're doing something to the canal. So it has to do with the conventional outflow pathway. You know, not uveoscleral pathway, but just strictly the conventional trabecular outflow pathway. Right. So what it, what it is, is it's if you see a wave in the operating room, we'll talk about that, it's evidence for intraoperative patency of the conventional outflow system. So, so it's a pretty simple thing, which I like. It's easy to elicit. So this does not involve any dye injection in the eye? No dye. No special lighting? No special lighting, exactly. It's simple, because I think simple. That's, that's what I do. And the... Um, the thought behind it came um, probably 10 years ago when we were doing uh, uh, viscocanalostomies and canaloplasties. So back then, where you would unroof Schlimm's canal right. during a, like, a, for example, a canaloplasty, but you know, the visco uh, canalostomy actually is what it called, came before. But, but either one. Right, and, and Stegman had those videos he would show of those high magnification microscope views. Where right. You would see things flowing through the outflow path. Yeah, that's right. And th- but those were like gonio views. So so if you you know if you do a canaloplasty, you basically unroof Schlimm's canal externally. Right. Right. Like ten years ago, whatever. So I thought it was really exciting to see Schlimm's canal when you unroofed it. It was really exciting. So what I did is I would inject BSS with the, usually it's a grease arbor cannula, or you could really just use a 30 gauge cannula, and right. just slide into the side of the canal, because we'd opened it up, right. right? And injected BSS to see the laminar flow. I wanted to see the flow go out. Yep. Because I thought it would just be cool. And the first few cases, I could see it. And it was really exciting to see the outflow system just be washed out by BSS. Right. I, I actually didn't really believe Schlem's Canal existed until I did viscocanalostomy. Right. <laughs> to me, it was right. a, a mythical beast. Yeah. It was like yeah, a yeah, unicorn or something. That's a good point because we can't visualize it no matter how hard we try in the clinic. 
you know, except indirectly, maybe blood would go in on gonioscopy. But anyway, so I, I was excited about that. You know, I would just kind of routinely do that. But I found out after I did a few more that I would inject BSS and nothing happened. There was no flow into the veins, right, adjacent. And I went, oh, no, I'm in the wrong spot. I, I did something wrong. I didn't know what to think about it back then. Right. I, 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 it didn't compute exactly. Just, you know, you're in the heat of battle, looking and thinking about the trabeculodesmetic membrane that you had to deal with next. And right. so, you know, I registered it in the brain and said, okay, you know, I don't always get flow. And I didn't know what that meant. Did you think you weren't in the canal? I did think that. Okay. I, I, I didn't know what to think. Yeah. I couldn't compute it okay. exactly. And, and then, you know, canaloplasty, you know, as, as microinvasive surgery came along and d working on the canal more internally, uh, you know, then we didn't go through the sclera anymore over the years, you know, because uh, we've been doing, for example, trabeculotomy ab internal circumferential for uh, five years. Right. So that's a long time. So uh, trabectome came along, which was very uh, elegant very uh, innovative procedure where you could ablate, you know, the trabecular leaflets that would typically close back during a trabeculotomy. Right. You could ablate that, and that was the beauty of that instrument that uh, um, Minkler did some work on it, Barveld invented it, but that was the beauty of that technique. So I'm in the uh, operating room, this is about five years ago, and, and uh, you know, we opened up the trabecular meshwork and we're having a lot of fluid go in the eye during, a, for example, a phaco trabectone. Right. So I said, I wonder if you can see the BSS going into the distal collector channels like we saw with canaloplasty. Well, luckily it was a case that you could see it because I learned later that, you know, our cases you don't see it. So, I, you know, you purposely have to do a few things to see the wave. Number one, uh, I put the patient in about a five-degree reverse Trendelenburg, and that's going to decrease the episclerovenous pressure just a little bit because okay. if your episclerovenous pressure is high, you're not going to see BSS going down through it. And that, that was one thing. The other thing we do when we're getting ready to try to see is there BSS going down through the collector channels is we raise the bottle uh, uh, to as high as it goes. Okay. Okay. And I think that, you know, that'll increase the pressure a little bit. So, you know, it's not very physiologic at all. But, you know, there's a lot of pressure in the eye, even just during FACO, when you have fluid going in, inside the eye. So, anyway, the key is reverse Trendelenburg. And... You do your uh, trabectome, and by the way, if you're looking at the collector channels, the episcleral veins, and you're just doing a phaco, you don't see any flow into the episcleral veins because you right. didn't open the canal. If anything, when pressure goes up in the eye, trabecular meshwork will normally oh, slam collapses. up against the back yeah. wall and, and herniate into the collector channels, and there's zero flow. So you don't see flow just during a phaco because some people kind of got mixed up on that. So let's say you do your trabectome. I typically do it first, and then let's say you do your phaco. So uh, during the INA, during phaco emulsification, is when I will try to see if there's blanching of the episcleral tissue. And it's always going to be adjacent to the trabectome site, if you're going to see it. Okay. Which kind of confirms the fact that there's very limited normal circumferential flow in the canal. It's like right. zero, I think. It's really, really minimal. Yeah, so it's really segmental. Totally flow. segmental, yeah. yeah. 
so um, so what I will do is I'll have everything ready. I've moved the scope over more towards where I'm looking at the limbus, you know, not right over the pupil. So I've moved the scope over a little bit so I can visualize the adjacent area to the trabectome. I'll take my foot off the foot pedal. So now I'm letting the pressure in the eye drop, okay? okay. And what happens is you'll see blood reflux at certain yep. clock hours, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and I'm gonna really look in that spot where I saw the reflux, because in, in reality, that blood is refluxing from Slim's, from, from the episcleral venous system right. into the anterior chamber because the pressure's low, and I'll look right, especially in that spot. And then, you know, then I floor the pedal, hit it all the way to the, to the floor, and then you'll just get a rush of BSS into the anterior chamber. And if there's a connection between the anterior chamber and through Schlimm's canal, because you've opened up the canal, you know, you just now have to go into the back wall of the canal. If the, if the collector channel entrance is patent, yep. and if the fluid, the BSS, how does it get to the episclera? That's just the key that we learn. Normally, your conventional outflow pathway, the majority of it is, you know, you have about 30, 25 to 35 collector channels. So let's say one of them's working. Right. And uh, the fluid then goes, so it starts at the collector channel entrance, and then it goes into the deep intrascleral plexus. And then the fluid goes into the mid scleral, intrascleral plexus. And then the fluid goes to the episcleral venous plexus. So it has to go all the way through those other, the, the two deep ones to make it to the episclera. Now granted, there are four, maybe three or four, maybe five veins of Asher, which are kind of, as people have said, they're the super highways. So they bypass that deep plexus. And they go straight from the canal to the episclera. Okay, so you can see uh, in some cases, if you're lucky, and you might see one of those bigger veins, uh, they, the fluid in that case does not go through the deep plexus. It does not go through the mid plexus. It goes straight to a super highway. Got it. Okay. But in general, what you see over the clock hours that you're looking at is, you know, there'll be maybe seven, eight, nine collectors in the area that you opened. And the question is, I shouldn't say the question. The point is that some serious investigators believe that some of the downstream collector channels are abnormal in primary open angle glaucoma. Nesterov showed that. Uh, uh, Deverac Theobald showed that. Goldman thought that in many cases. Uh, Asher thought that. If you go back and read the literature from the 50s and the 60s, a lot of these people said, we think glaucoma is not so much the meshwork, but right behind the canal. So not juxtacanalicular tissue? No. Okay. That's totally correct. And, you know, that's all been lost, that old reading, you know. Right. Um, so... And obviously, I started to read more about this when I realized that in some patients, I would see a, a diffuse blanching of the episcleral tissues with BSS running down there when we elicited the wave. So right. when we, you know, we would raise the bottle, let the fluid run in the eye and look. And, and we would see sometimes four or five clock hours, it just turned white. And then other cases, nothing. No blanching. And the blanching occurs because BSS ran all the blood out of the tissues right. as the wave went through. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now the, the question is then, 
uh, do you want to optimize your treatment to improve the flow through those areas that have the collector system that's working? Or do you want to do yeah. something to improve the flow where yeah. you don't have good collector yeah. system no, working? No, I think, I think, we don't really know the answer to that perfectly, but yeah. Haiyan Gong, I was talking to, who's done an incredible amount of, you know, great laboratory researcher and outflow in, in Boston, that she was doing an experiment where she was trying to increase flow, flow through angle work, uh, canal work, in, let's say, the temporal area. Right. But there was still less resistance to flow nasally, even though she'd worked on the temporal part of the angle. Right. So the aqueous is going to, it wants to go out the path of least resistance, yeah, period. That's what I would think. So, yeah, so... Anyway, what I wanted to get to as well is the fact that if you see a blanch of BSS on the episclera, yep. what does that mean? It means that the deep and the mid plexus are open. Yep. They're working. So, so do your, does so the trabeculum work better in the patients where you see the wave compared to patients where you yes, don't see the wave? Yes, and we did or report just, that. I'll okay. tell you about that in a second but what i wanted to say was it's kind of like a poor man's angiogram right the wave so it's it, in a way it yeah. is angiography right yeah but it's with uh balanced salt solutions yeah. I, don't, I don't know exactly what you would call that yeah but no it's like putting in the coronary stents and now you have 100 percent flow and instead of any occlusion yeah so uh, so anyway, we did notice this, and we did notice that the wave was very diffuse and marked blanching. Now, the blanching represents the fact, that if it's over several clock hours, that the deep plexus works, the mid plexus works, because that's the only way to get the BSS to the episclera. But it means that whole deep network is functional to an extent. To, it, there's some capacity. That's very different than the superhighway, where all of a sudden you see BSS run out of big vein. Yep. Very different. Okay, because we found after looking at everything that the blanching correlated best with the lower pressure. So we went back and looked at all our fake trabectomes. We 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 did it uh, uh, masked, and we had a grading system. You know, it's very arbitrary, but it's the best we could do. We reported in ophthalmology, and what we found was that patients who had uh, uh, several clock hours of blanching. Their average pressure was 11.9, maybe 12, on one medicine. Right. The patients who had minimal to trace wave, their average pressure was 19 on three medicines. Wow. And the reoperation rate in the patients who had significant flow, four, five, and six clock hours was zero. The reoperation rate for further glaucoma surgery, I should right. say, uh, was 33%, 36% maybe, in the group that had a poor wave. So it gives the surgeon a little bit of a feel for you know how much trouble you're going to be in down the road. Now it's not exact, you know, viscoelastic may mess up some of the wave, or maybe the viscoelastic is clogged in there. Because some people that don't have a, that didn't have a great wave, maybe it was moderate, you know, did better than I thought. Right. Now the uh, the other corollary is patients that had a great wave. Occasionally you'll see a failure there, not a total failure, but their pressure's not as low as you thought, and they had aberrant wound healing. 
Okay. So those patients get uh, granulation tissue in their canal. So we haven't learned how to modulate wound healing yet after microinvasive canal surgery. Uh, it took us 50 years to learn how to modulate wound healing with a filter. Our modulation of wound healing with canal surgery is zero. Right. So we got a lot to learn there. But that's the essence of the of it. You would, you would think there would be less risk of granulation tissue formation with something like a trabectoma as opposed to you know, the procedures where you're just ripping through the canal? Don't know. Through the mesh. It's a great question. Yeah. We don't know what is the best way to open the canal, yeah. or is it better to stent it? Is it better to open right. it? You know, the wound healing that's associated with all those varieties is poorly described. Yeah. And we're, we're looking at that now. Any thoughts in terms of whether the, the fluid wave would work for any of the other MIGS procedures? Like yes. If, for eye stents, can you see yes, the fluid wave? Yes, in fact, we've looked at that, and like, for example, if we do a circumferential trabeculotomy, mm -hmm. we'll see usually a 360 fluid wave. Okay. If we open up, uh, you know, if you only open up, well, let's say you do an eye stent. Yeah. And you're lucky enough to A. You have to hit the right spot. Get a near, <laughs> let's say you're near a collector channel. Right. Uh, B, you're lucky enough that it's in the right position. Uh, and C, you're lucky enough that the distal collectors will show you something. Oh, right. And uh, the, the uh, amount of circumferential flow with an Iceland is probably uh, one to two clock hours. So I'll see maybe a, a segment light up, but it makes sense because we know the circumferential flow in Slim's Canal is nil. Right. So it can only access maybe a clock hour to one side, that's it, and, and that's all it can do. And then the, the aqueous is going to take the path of least resistant, it's going to go down that collector channel, doesn't want to go anywhere else, Yep. because that's the least resistance pathway, and that's it. And in terms of doing the fluid wave with the eye stent, that, that would be after you put the stent in, because right. if you tried before, right. you, you won't, won't get flow, you're just you, exactly. collapse. Exactly, exactly. So you put your eye stent in, work. and then you look, and I've almost thought about, well, if I don't see a wave, should, should I move I the eye stent? Yeah, so yeah, I don't know, that'd be a great study. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely. a very simple kind of poor man's angiogram. It's done in the operating room. We don't have a way. You know, I've oftentimes said, if we ask ourselves, what's the outcome marker for uh, glaucoma surgery with a TRAB? It's a bleb. You yeah. look at the bleb and you kind of got a feel yeah. for what's going on. Well, what's the outcome marker for microinvasive glaucoma surgery? Well, we don't have one. We're trying to look at aqueous going the, in the, the veins. The long-term follow-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pressure, but we don't have an outcome marker for MIG surgery. Right. So that's a big problem. So that's why, at least in the operating room, we can see something. Yeah, that's uh, great. But, so it's a start. Thanks. Very practical uh, bit of advice. Well, thanks. Thanks for sitting down and chatting with me. Yeah, thank you. Take care. That's our show for today. Thanks for your patience as I slowly post new episodes, including a long discussion with Murray Johnstone and a talk about the new glaucoma drug, Ropressa. If you subscribe via iTunes, Pocket Casts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found, you will get the new episodes as they come out. If you like the show, please leave a rating on iTunes as this is the best way for others to find it and tell your friends about the show. Drop me a line at podcast at iGuy.org with your comments. Visit wholelotofrob.com, westcoastglaucoma.com, or follow me on Twitter at Rob Scherzer. Links to all these are in the show notes. Remember to keep fighting glaucoma by early detection so that nobody loses vision from this group of diseases.